Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. This is Jason Shadrick, and welcome back to another week of Chasing Frets. I'm joined this week with Joe Gore. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And this week, as you heard on Monday, our guest is Jim Campolongo. And we went to a lot of his, uh, about his new album, Two Guitars, with Luca Benedetti. And today's episode, we're going to talk really about the crux of his, what his style has become is this, this amalgamation of country and jazz influences. And in this episode, we get a lot of his backstory of his early days playing those clubs in South San Francisco. Yeah, it's uh, Jim definitely had some hard scrabble, tough club gigs in his past. Yeah, it's like, I think, I mean, aside from being an amazing player who plays with such intense emotion, I think part of Jim's appeal is that he's kind of almost his own genre. I mean, it's obviously you hear strong country and jazz roots, but you wouldn't you wouldn't call him a country or a jazz player. Um uh, there's rock in there too, uh, though it's it's kind of submerged oh, yeah. into the background. But uh, he's kind he's kind of invented his own musical language in a way, and he tells us a little bit about that today. Yeah, and it was so interesting hearing about the, the lessons he learned growing up, and and what albums he listened to to kind of that helped shape his style. And this is a real en- enlightening conversation with with Jim. So uh, so hope you stick around. Here's our uh, here's our next episode with Jim Campolongo. So Jim, welcome back, man. And uh, today's topic is something uh, that first struck me when I first heard your music back when I was a, a young developing guitar player, is that how you so, what seemingly sounded effortless, uh, combined country and jazz. And I remember a famous quote, I'm probably hurting it third hand, but one time where it says, you know, jazz is just country guitar played on the neck pickup. <laughs> Yeah, I guess there's some truth to that. <laughs> so when when you were growing up and absorbing all these influences, when did you start to kind of combine those two worlds? Well, it, it the jazz thing was later. I, I, I ended up uh, discovering, for lack of a better word, uh, Merle Haggard, um, and I really liked it uh, when I was probably like 18 or 19. Um, and uh, And... From that point on, it was like an archaeological dig. Um, 
to find music that I like because I now I know how specific my tastes are and were. Um, you know, I like Merle Haggard before he had a beard, Johnny Paycheck before he had a beard. I like Waylon Jennings before he had a beard. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like I like their earlier stuff with pedal steel um, and their crooners. Um, and the pedal steel was important too. So it took me a while to get that. And uh, I, you know, it, it would just take forever to explain this stumbling uh, upon discoveries. But, um, you know, I eventually found, uh, you know, Jimmy Bryant and Hank Garland um, and uh, some other guys. Jimmy Rivers was really big. Uh, to me, a really big influence. I, I actually went to Jack Record Store uh, on, uh, on Western Edition. I can't remember the name of the street. And uh, those guys were wearing, like, buttons, like, ban the CD and all this. And I went in and I said, hey, what's the best versions of Stardust you have? And uh, so the one guy was like, get this, get this, get this. And he said, you got to get this record. It doesn't have Stardust on it, but it's Jimmy Rivers and the Cherokees' Brisbane Bob. And I said, okay. So I brought it home. And I'm sure this is when, uh, you know, Joe, I had just first met Joe. And the sonically, it was so inferior, I, I kind of didn't embrace it. And I had gotten a bunch of records, so I kind of ignored it. And about six months later, I listened to it and just thought, man, this is fantastic. And uh, I started learning Jimmy solos note for note, the ones I could. I mean, I, 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 some of them I didn't quite understand them, but I knew what notes he was playing. And ended up doing a pilgrimage to uh, uh, Placerville, where he was playing. And he played at this restaurant on Sunday nights and went up there and sat in the back of this restaurant and watched him play and he was still fantastic and he came up to me you know during the break i guess i stood out and i was just like in awe of him and uh, we we really developed a, a friendship and he gave me a couple guitar lessons he broke things down for me uh that was invaluable to this day um what were what were some of those revelations you got out of those lessons well what was part of his brilliance was that he could get a complicated equation and reduce it to a simple equation. I mean, that's kind of genius, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've read like Pat Martino interviews and, and Pat's obviously great, but he gets like a hard equation and makes it, you know, like there's a triangle and everything's attached to the diminished voicing or something, you know. But Jimmy was the opposite of that. And I don't, I'm not dissing Pat Martino. I love Desperado and a lot of his work. Joyous Lake is a really mm. good Pat Martino record. But I would hear Pat Martino talk and I would just be more confused. Um, for example, um, he, uh, I, he could rip over I Got Rhythm Changes. And I mean, even now, it's like, it's not a natural thing for me and I don't do it enough. But... I was really struggling and he's like ripping over it 
and I'm playing, let's say if we're in B flat, I'm playing B flat, B diminished seven, C, uh, C minor seven, C sharp diminished, D minor seven, G seven, C seven, E seven, E minor seven, A seven, you know, I mean, on and on and ching, 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 you know, like change, 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 change. And I'm like, what are you thinking, Jimmy? Like over that, like, which is kind of a naive question. Yeah. You know, it's like going up to an actor or a comedian and going, how do you do it? You know, but I said, what are you thinking? And he goes, one, five, one, five, one, five. That's all he thought. And he just treat, he's treating the diminished chords as altered dominance. I mean, yeah. And you could, yep. C minor is a glorified five sus if you will. Like, I mean, C minor and F7 and B flat are one note difference if you look at it, the B flat and uh, E flat, I think it is. Yeah, to and lower the bottom note a half step. There's like, so it's almost like a sus five, right? And he would play more than that. Like he'd, he'd play some of the chord tones and he did it intuitively, but it really helped me. Like, I just went one, five, one, five, and it allowed me to maybe nail the minor third of the four minor chord, maybe. Like, that's all I'd have to worry about, is an example. Mm. And the other thing is he'd throw out, like, half the chords. And that's because I was at home struggling with the real book, which had, like, you know, Frank Zappa songs in it why I don't know, you know, and stuff like that. Like, why is there a Chick Corea song? I want to, I want to play Stardust or Anniversary Waltz at the wedding next week. Like in a lot of ways, like the real book's a very strange book. And, but they had tritone substitutions. They had uh, chromaticism and, you know, he, Jimmy would be like, Jimmy knew it and knew some songs just as a pop song he's heard from childhood so it would be, no, it's just C to A minor. <laughs> you know? I mean, it would be like everything got thrown out. And, and that's how I still operate. If, oh. if I learn a tune, I really try and get it down to what, like, either in my thought process or literally the chords, what can go. Because you're going to play... I mean, even my charts up in New York, people call my charts gym charts. And I've actually had some uh, conversions, like other guys, like Berkeley graduates, use gym charts. And gym charts say C, G7, C, F, you know, or something. But all the passing stuff and embellishments. Like, hey, you're good. You'll figure it out. You can throw it on the floor and stand up and see it. And if you want to play G augmented seventh for the five chord, we'll hear it, you know. So mm -hmm. even to this day, I try and look at things as, like, cut the fat out. And you will play that stuff. I mean, maybe you'll play some chromaticism going down to the uh, dominant six chord or whatever. Like, why write that out? Why have a chart that goes like C7, B7, B flat 7, A7? Like, why write that out? I mean, 
that's what I think. So he was a real influence on that regard. And I loved his playing. It was soulful. It was original. And in some ways, very idiosyncratic. Um, some of the things he played don't fall naturally. Like even some Charlie Parker horn lines fall more naturally. Like he, he really went for like the sound. So that was kind of where I started getting into it. And all those guys, um, I think they listened to Charlie Christian. I mean, oh yeah, you know, Eldon Shamblin, all those guys. Listen to for sure. And and, and so yes, it, it it's probably jazz with a, a treble pickup and less swing. Like I mean, even Albert Lee or somebody like that. If you go, you know, or you go, then it's kind of jazz and swing. It's almost like jazz lines played as uh, eighth notes, like non-swinging eighth notes. Well, because the tempo, like I've always thought of it as like as the tempo goes up, the notes tend to straighten out a bit more, you know, but they still have this bounce to it. Well, there's also, but it's also, you know, you have the, you know, missing link that people leave out a lot of the time is boogie woogie, which is basically, you know, something closer to straight eighth notes, something close to a rock and roll rhythm, but using jazz idioms. When you're talking about uh, Jimmy Rogers and Brisbane bop, um, there's interesting um, uh, geographical coincidence there. Because <laughs> uh, Jim's from, um, you know, uh, Jim, Jim and I met when we were both in San Francisco. And in San Francisco, you've got, you know, fabulous, pretentious, artsy, wonderful, weird San Francisco. But immediately, you know, south of San Francisco is the cleverly named South San Francisco and Brisbane, which are two smaller, you know, way more work, you know, you know, working class, down to earth, uh, you know, a lot more middle America vibe. And, uh, you know, I did you you spent your whole childhood in, in, in South San Francisco. Am I am I right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I grew up. And, in- and Brisbane's right next door. And it was kind of this weird little uh, country music um you know, hotspot in a part of the world that's not really known for country music. And uh, you gigged in Brisbane for years and years. Well, yeah, for years and years. One of my first gigs was in Brisbane, and I own a house there um, to this day. I own a pad in Brisbane. I ended up buying a house back in the 80s. But when I was still, I might have been in high school, maybe 17, just out of high school. I played a club in Brisbane called the Silver Spur or something like that. And um, I remember the owner came up to me and he goes, do you, we got there kind of early and we were all excited. And uh, it was like six o'clock for a nine o'clock gig. And the owner comes up to me, he goes, do you want to get paid cash or do you want to get paid in Coke? And I thought, Geez, that's a lot of Coke. Like, it's not even Coca-Cola. <laughs> so I honestly was that, I mean, and it was kind of pre-Coke, you know, uh, like it wasn't Miami Vice yet. And uh, so I said, oh, no, cash. You know, like I, I was like, that's absurd. Like ginger ale or cash. <laughs> you know, that's how I look at it. And we played a little bit. But you get ten, a 10% extra if you take it in Coke. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I should have I should have wheeled and dealed, but like ten minutes later, I um, we 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 did our little sound check at, at Brisbane, 
Um, and I used the bathroom, and I remember I was in there, and it was a crummy bathroom, and all of a sudden the door slammed, and I saw the door, and I heard like, like some guy was getting the shit beat out of him, and I saw the door coming in to him through his body getting punched, and that was at about 6 o'clock. And... And I swear to you, by the end of the night, I've never, I've seen it in the movies, you know, like in Westerns, like one guy throws a punch and all of a sudden the balcony collapses, you know, like there's 40, 100 fights going on at once. That kind of happened. Um, we were playing and a fight broke out. All of a sudden, I mean, it was just like everywhere there was fighting. Like no one was not <laughs> fighting. And... Uh, I, I am not exaggerating. I, I almost feel like I hallucinated it, but everybody in that club, like tumbleweed, rolled out of that club fighting. Like, like it was so weird. And it was almost empty, and everyone was fighting in the street. Uh, and it just was this big brawl. And one of the reasons is, I, I at the time, I think... Um, Brisbane is is not it there's some weird law with Brisbane where there's no law after 5 p.m. So anything goes after 5 p.m. and they had a long history of that and Jimmy Rivers told me about that and what would happen when he first played there he had to fight three different guys like the first three nights he played, and after he fought him, he was accepted. Um, and it's always been a rough and tumble town. Buck Owens played there, Lefty Frizzell played there. Many famous artists played at the 23 Club, but it was lawless. I think that's changed now. Um, I'd imagine. I mean, how could it not? But anyway, if you've ever if you've ever visited San Francisco and flown into San Francisco Airport and drove to the city from the airport. Uh, that little town you passed on the way up was Brisbane, and it's a special little microclimate. Yeah, and you'll also see written on the mountain, South San Francisco, the industrial city, and that's my hometown. So when was it when you kind of started to envelop these influence into creating your own original music? What had happened was I was in a country band, a uh, good one too, called Van Riff, and we did kind of Bakersfield-style country and um, the band just kind of, you know, it, it, it ran its course. And so I was a little frustrated with that. I thought, geez, um, you know, I put so much work into this and now what? I have nothing. And so for I, I just I decided that I was going to um, play instrumental music without vocals that was country, that wasn't danceable. And I really thought, this is, this is it. This is the end. Like, all those things equate obscurity. But I worked on, I, I, I kind of, I shedded for about a year and a half. I didn't play with anybody. And uh, I got this, I read this guitar magazine, and it had like the, Steve Vai 12-hour workout mm -hmm. in it. And I, I saw that and I thought, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and I did it. <laughs> it's kind of a funny fact. Um, 
And so I did the, you know, he did arpeggios and scales and then he'd do something else. And so I did that and I was learning these country classics like The Claw by Jerry Reed and all those kind of, those part of the repertoire. Anyway, so I booked a gig because um, a guy named Duncan James told me, book the gig and then let the chips fall where they may. And I, I thought, that's good advice. So I booked a gig before I hardly had a set or a band. And I had about four or five of these, you know, steel guitar rag and the claw and all that stuff. And I was uh, practicing one day and my ex-wife, Mimi, came in, who is lovely, came into the practice room. She goes, what are you doing? And I go, I'm learning this, you know, song. I forgot which one it was. I said, because I have a gig. I got to get a set. And she goes, well, why don't you write a song? And I go, because I really love these songs. Like, I want to pay tribute to them, and I love them. And she said, well, I don't think you can write a song. That's why you're not doing it. And I was like, okay. I go, write down song titles, and I'll write a song for every one of the song titles. <laughs> and about four minutes later, she comes back with this long list. And uh, one was Botro the Robot. One was Snake, I think uh, Splitsville might have been on there. Anyway, many of the songs that are on my first two records, I wrote based on that list. Um, the first one I wrote was, uh, she wrote Pigpen Down, but it got changed to Blue Hen, which is off the first record. And that's the first song I wrote. And it's pretty good because I, I'm, I'm reissuing that in vinyl and I went back and listened to it. I was like, man, this record's pretty good. Um, wish I still played like that. <laughs> and uh, so um, that's the first song I wrote based on her kind of prompting, like psychologically prompting me to write original material. It so was a dare. Pardon me. It was a dare. She dared you to do it. Yeah, she did. And you know, do you, remember, do you remember that? Do you remember the connection that Mimi was my guitar student? Yes. Yeah. And then when I got my first guitar magazine gig, Jim brilliantly took over my my teaching practice, and everybody was much happier because Jim is a truly great teacher. But you married one of your students. <laughs> I married your ex student. Um, and, uh, you know, Mimi was great. I still see her red fingernails playing on that SG. Yeah, I remember her fondly. She was she, cool. She, I think you showed her Never on Sunday, and she used to play that. You know, like so charming. Um, but anyway, so about four months later, I had a bunch of originals, and I started to play with some guys and ended up finding Joe Gould, Mark Kenny Owen, and Chris Key. And there was a really nice chemistry there. So that's how I started nice. doing it. So to wrap up this episode, if there were maybe two or three records that if somebody wanted to get into kind of this country jazz hybrid, uh, which two or three records might you point them to? Well... I mean, I would, that's a really tough question. I mean, definitely like Jimmy Bryant, Speedy West, Country Cabin Jazz, uh, Buddy Emmons, Emmons International, uh, which is a pedal steel record, but it's great. Um, he has a great bebop record too. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's all like anthropology. Yeah, it's yep, steel guitar right. jazz. 
Yeah. Um, he wasn't happy with that record. I, I was happy with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I am too. I, I was listening. But funny enough, I, I have a, I, in the mornings now at like 5.30, I go for a, a walk anywhere from three to five miles just because it's during the quarantine. It's my quarantine thing I do. And I have an iPod, right, from like, I don't know, 2006, <laughs> so long ago. And I have an iPod, and I always put it on shuffle because there's like 12,000 tunes in there. And this morning I was walking in, I thought, wow, this is good. And it was Buddy Emmons from Steel Guitar Jazz. I listened to that oh, this man. morning. But that's uh, one. And then, uh, I mean, definitely like Hank Garland and the Sugar mm. Footers. I mean, it's... Uh, Really good stuff. Was that from the sessions? Like I always love the sessions he did with Gary Burton, like the new new jazz. Yeah, I, that's that's a jazz record, and honestly, like I I get impatient with the vibes. Like I wish Gary Burton wasn't on that record. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, I like vibes sometimes, like with Thelonious Monk, or and I don't want to or Charlie vibes. or Charlie Christian. Or Charlie Christian. But sometimes the vibes just always sound friendly to me. Not enough grit you know, on. I, I have never heard evil vibes. Yeah, <laughs> doom vibes would be a cool thing. Mm. There's a, If any percussion students out there, there's an there's a empty slot in the percussion universe that's just waiting to be filled by you. <laughs> we need evil vibes. But I think Gary, um, on that record... Um, like he plays too long um, and I kind of wait for it to end so I could hear Hank. Like, um, I mean, you know, forgive me for giving an opinionated opinion. I usually try and hold back, but I love that record except for that. Mm. And he's fantastic and has had a great career and has forgotten more about music than I'll ever know. Mm -hmm. um, and had a very has had a very special relationship with guitar and guitarists throughout his whole career. Right, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, he, lots of and, lots of great players, and all, and as a mentor of young players too. He's the he's the John Mayall of jazz guitarists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is, and. I like some of his records more than I... He was like a kid on that record. Oh, yeah. He was like 17 or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He sounds like a kid to me. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Jim. Uh, it's great to have you this week. And we'll uh, see everybody back here on Friday. Bye.